0: Hello and welcome to the 40th and final episode of Eight More Miles, the Louisville Metro Council District 8 podcast. This is Councilman Brandon Cohn. It is Monday, November the 16th, and it's only fitting that uh, my last guest is the new council member elect for District 8, Cassie Chambers Armstrong. Cassie, first congratulations on being official and thank you for being on the show.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Well, first, let me just, uh, I know that you're expecting your second child literally any day now. How are you feeling?
1: I'm feeling good. Um, you know, I think the thing about having a second kid is you don't think as much about being pregnant because you're chasing around the first one. Um, so it seems like this pregnancy has sort of flown by. Um, but I'm grateful to have a little bit of time to spend with my family before getting sworn in in January.
0: Well, so we're, this part of the podcast is uh, introducing you more fully to the people of District Eight who are getting to know you. So, just tell us a little. Tell us a little bit about your family, your husband Brian, and your 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 other child. How old is the other child, and what's his name, and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah. So, my um, my first child is named Cooper. He's about a year and a half old, and at that um, full-on, literally climbing the wall stage, um, so he <sighs> keep, keeps us very busy. Um, We love the park and we spend a lot of time in all the great parks in District 8. Um, My husband, Brian, is an attorney like me, born and bred Lavillian, and he was actually born in the Highlands and loves it so much here that when he proposed, um, he literally, right after he sort of got down on one knee and said, will you marry me? Um, He snuck in, oh, and can we we live together and always live in the Highlands? Um, And so, uh, he uh, he loves the Highlands as much as I do, and we sort of love being here with our family, and we're expecting our second baby boy to join us, like you said, any day now.
0: Well, congratulations, and uh, I hope the timing works out for you to get some rest around the holidays. As Pete, as we probably talk about a little bit, you and I have been meeting for several months in terms of trying to help get you prepared and transition to do the job on day one, so even though you'll have a, another baby in the house, um, you'll have enough support and sort of preparation to be able to, you know, jump right into the job. And I have no doubt that you'll be able to do that.
1: Well, um, and I, tell, I, I do wanna, yeah, I will say um, we've, we, you're, right, we're, you're right. We've been sort of meeting and doing the transition process um, and it's been wonderful. And it has also made me realize just how many um, pieces there are to this job and how many balls you have kept in the air that a lot of people don't see. And so um, for folks who are listening who maybe don't realize exactly how many things you have been juggling on a daily basis, let me just say it is a lot and it's very impressive to get a sort of behind the curtain peek at it all.
0: Well, thanks, I I hope it's helpful. Um, So, you know, we're gonna talk about a lot of stuff today, but, you know, most people in the district have gotten to know you just through the campaign process and it was a totally atypical campaign with the COVID restrictions and sort of the inability to get door to door and meet people. You know, people sort of have seen your advertisements or your Facebook posts or whatever people did in order to campaign this last time around. Got to read a few newspaper articles about you and the other candidates, but I want to go back. Can you just sort of tell us, tell me like a little bit more about yourself. We've been, you know, good acquaintances for a while now, but you know, We didn't know each other growing up. I'm not sure exactly where you're from. Can you take us back to, you know, it doesn't have to be your your preschool days, but tell us a little bit about yourself when you were younger and growing up and that sort of thing. And sort of we'll walk forward to how we got to where we are today.
1: Yeah. So um, I sort of spent my childhood in Eastern Kentucky um, in uh, Berea, which is sort of a liberal small town um, right at sort of the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. And then also in Owsley County which is sort of deep rural Appalachia um, poorest county by income in the continental United States hmm. uh, and really sort of spent a lot of my childhood surrounded by poverty and people who were struggling um, and was very lucky to sort of have a strong community and a supportive family and also just really good local government from my perspective in Berea that provided me with a lot of opportunities and so, Um, That sort of instilled in me this idea that government can be a force for good, particularly local government, um, and that communities are really at their best when they're working to support one another. So those sort of early experiences very much shaped who I am and why I decided to run for Metro Council.
0: So... Um, Owsley County I guess Boonville is the county seat there that's that's real eastern Kentucky I think people are probably familiar with Berea south of Lexington a college town you say eastern Kentucky it's sort of east central eastern Kentucky but uh, there's no doubt that Owsley County is is real Appalachia help me understand were you born in Owsley County and you moved to Berea or vice versa or sort of what what really what part of your life was in deep Appalachia?
1: Yeah. So my parents had me um, when they were college kids. Um, My both my parents were first generation college students, sort of my mom had me her sophomore year of college and made the really difficult and admirable decision to, you know, she took a leave of absence for a while to stay home with me when I was very, very young. Um, But then continued her education and sort of the closest family I had was a little over an hour away in Boomville. And so while she and my dad completed their college degrees, I spent a lot of time with my Owsley County family on the farm um, sort of, you know, for a week or a couple of weeks or a month here and there. And even, you know, sort of as I got older, it was a place that I was very much connected to because it, it blows my mind. I, I had my first kid at 33 um, and my mom had me at 19. And so thinking back to how young they were trying to raise a family, I can really, see how much support they needed to be able to do that and to provide me with opportunities. Um, and so, you know, I understand that's how Owsley County came to sort of be such a formative part of my life.
0: So your grandparents are from there. One, Some of your grandparents are from there.
1: Yeah, pretty much my whole extended family.
0: Gotcha. Okay. And you went to high school in Berea?
1: I did. I went to Berea Community High School.
0: Okay. And um, I'm just going to, you're probably too modest to tell listeners about the rest of your education. I'm gonna read it for people. It's really so impressive. I think there's no doubt that whatever it was in your mother that inspired her to continue her education, education is clearly a value that is important to your family and to you. You, There's no need to blush. You should be proud. You have an incredible uh, resume in terms of your education. You have bachelor's degree from Yale, a master's in public health from Yale, uh, a J.D. from Harvard Law School and a master's of some sort from the London School of Economics, you know, maybe the three best universities on planet Earth. So, you know, tell us a little bit about that, you know, really sort of unbelievable educational resume. Is this are these just places that you were determined to go to since you were a little girl learning your, you know, learning to read and write and, and do math or, you know, what brought you to these institutions and what did you study when you were there?
1: I really think it's like you said, um, the value of education that particularly my mom instilled in me. Uh, For my mom, she was not just the first in her family to go to college, but actually the first to be able to graduate high school. Um, She was the sixth of seven kids. A lot of her siblings dropped out in sort of second, third grade because they were living in a community with so much poverty um, that. They, they just didn't have the opportunity to continue with their education. They had to help out on the farm. There were just other concerns. And so for my mom to be the one of the younger kids in this family and have the chance to graduate high school and go to college, um, in her mind, her going from sort of that situation to Berea meant that um, the distance between me sort of growing up in Berea and then going on to, The Ivy League, um, she felt like sort of the distance between those jumps was the same. She truly believed that education was the most important thing in the world, um, that it changed lives, that it opened doors, and that if she had come as far as she could, that I could go as far as I wanted. And so um, I never grew up thinking that I couldn't go to whatever institution I wanted to go to. Um, I realized in sort of hindsight, what a naive view that was. Um, I didn't realize sort of how how hard it was at the time and how selective those institutions were. Um, but I was really lucky to have a lot of good public school teachers, a lot of um, community members, mentors, family members who um, sort of didn't question me and, and helped me um, achieve my goals. And uh, as to what I studied, I studied. I've always sort of been interested in the way that um, sort of different factors interact to to create the environment we live in. So I've studied everything from psychology to economics to built environment, public health, because in my mind, all of these different pieces sort of come together to shape the world that we live in and the way we navigate it. And I've just always been sort of fascinated with that idea of um, how we. What were your
0: What were your what, undergraduate degrees in at Yale?
1: Um, so I studied psychology, um, and I did a focus in neuroscience.
0: Gotcha. And so, why Yale? I mean, obviously, you know, when you're, you know, there's a there's a story there of all the different schools you went to, but at some point you had to decide where do you want to go to college. And if you're, you know, most people, I think, especially young people, have some sense of the kinds of different schools that you know either they can get into because they have good test scores, or the kinds of schools they want to go to because they. Desire a certain kind of college experience. What what was it about Yale? Was that uh, how did you arrive there?
1: I think it was. um, I really liked the five year bachelor's master's of public health combined degree, and I ended up that was the degree I did to okay, gotcha. Masters in public health at the same time. It was pretty unique at the time that I started it, Um, and you know I had this sort of interest in science with the neuroscience and the psychology, but also in the policy side of things, and so I got to study those simultaneously.
0: Gotcha. Well, obviously public health is something that's um, so important right now and something that you couldn't have even imagine would have been um, so relevant when you started your campaign or when you first thought about running for office because that was pre-COVID. Uh, so um, has, has the, your public health uh, background really shaped your um the way you're viewing the local and state and i guess to a lesser extent national response to the coronavirus and do you have any sort of observations in terms of where we are and what you think as a council person you'll be able to do going forward in this area
1: yeah i definitely think that the perspective has shaped the way i'm looking at things just because i have you know taken courses in epidemiology and the statistics of disease tracking um and sort of public health infrastructure and different methods of contact tracing and whatnot. And so, you know, I I think that will be a valuable perspective. I know that everything is shifting so quickly that where we are when I'm sworn in in January might be very different from where we are right now. We're I mean, we're certainly seeing really alarming numbers. And Louisville is the most urban area in Kentucky, has unique challenges to think about. Um, and so, you know, I'm sort of recognizing that it's an evolving. Day to day situation, um, but very eager to sort of get in and wrap my head around exactly where we are in January and figure out what resources our city can deploy to help get this thing under control.
0: Yeah, I was sort of looking through your campaign website materials, those are still up. You put together a COVID response plan or platform, or um, I don't know what you want to call it. I think it was a plan, coronavirus plan. Can you tell people a little bit of, about that and obviously this was something that was drafted at least several months ago and so the situation on the ground has changed some but what were you thinking in terms of how to help navigate the community through what we're going experiencing right now
1: yeah it was definitely um you know i will say the coronavirus plan um uh, no one expected that that was going to be the sort of thing that you would even have to be thinking about when you launched a campaign, this idea that, um, you know, it was gonna, this was going to be one of the major issues in the campaign. Um, But I really sort of focused on how we could support our small businesses. Um, You know, it's important to recognize that when we're taking public health measures, those have an impact on, community and on our small businesses, and we need to find ways to support them. Um, And so, you know, focusing on things like finding creative sources of funding, um, being flexible with zoning requirements, making sure that we're keeping our ear to the ground um, in terms of what the business community needs and how to make sure that we're minimizing the impact. Um, Because supporting those neighborhood businesses means supporting our neighborhoods as a whole is, you know, as I know, you know, and have talked about. Um, you know, the other thing that I really wanted to focus on was addressing the disparities we've seen um, all across America, but also here in Louisville, that, um, you know, communities with high, higher rates of poverty, Black communities, um, these are places where we're seeing sort of worse outcomes. And it's not specific to the coronavirus. It's really just highlighted these underlying issues around um, inequities in the built environment and in access to uh, socioeconomic determinants of health. Um, and so that's something that we need to do in response to the coronavirus, but also just in response to the way that our city has been structured inequitably for a long period of time.
0: Yeah, and- it's it. I'll just interrupt just briefly. It's you know, it seems like, um, you know, equity and trying to deal with some of these systems and Um, that have been perpetuated over the years and have led to such an unfair sort of city and society that we live in is something you've always been interested in. You probably could have gone and done anything you wanted to after um, your educational experiences, and you you are an attorney. And it seems says that you went to go practice law at the Legal Aid Society in the Kentucky Equal Justice Center, where you represented victims of domestic violence in family law matters. Um, so you've chosen sort of a public interest kind of career that I'd like you to talk about and also I'll, you know you noted this as well on sort of on your campaign uh, website you talk about big solutions to big problems and when you get down into the meat of what you sort of write about there you're talking about some of these systemic inequities and uh, how you hope and think that district 8 in our neighborhoods here can, contribute more to progress there in terms of the overall community. What sort of potential do you see for uh, more involvement by Highlands people?
1: Yeah, I think um, this is a community that um, by a lot of metrics has a lot of resources. It's a very well-resourced community that sort of um, certainly has, you know, struggling families, struggling members overall, it's above the average income of the city. It also has a lot of really engaged folks who really want to make a difference and recognize that our city is more than just sort of these artificial lines on maps and that the inequities and disparities in our city really affect all of us. um, And that if we all want to do better, we all have to do better together. And so I think finding ways to engage in conversations around how we take the resources here, whether it's monetary or it's sort of sweat equity or it's people's sort of talents. We have so many people who have been active either in um, leading nonprofits in their professional capacity or on boards and they have such a great perspective and sort of figuring out how to tap into that for the good of the whole city, I think is um, gonna be really interesting work to engage in. And I'm really excited to do it because I do think with everything that's gone on in 2020, the people in District 8 are um, more fired up to sort of engage in that, that big systemic work um, to, to help the city as a whole. I don't know if, you've, if that squares with what-
0: Yeah, I mean, so, with, you know, um, I think me and you've discussed, all, I mean, we discussed all sorts of things. And one of the things that I said, I wish I had the resources for, if I could go back and do everything all over again, was a full-time volunteer coordinator. So many organizations in town that I really admire, the Olmstead Parks Conservancy, places like that, You know, they depend on volunteer labor and talent and treasure and that kind of stuff to get stuff done, because it's literally just you and whoever else is going to work in the district office with you, probably one person and maybe some interns from time to time to try to, you know, deal with the the stuff that you encounter every day, to be working on legislation, to be preparing for meetings, to do this, to respond to current events, which is always unexpected, and how to get other people engaged in a coordinated fashion is like a real challenge. And so what I've tried to do is first get people organized. I've had a pretty heavy emphasis on, you know, putting neighborhood associations where there weren't any by trying to have all the neighborhood groups uh, talk to each other through this district and advisory board. I've tried to generally keep people informed through the newsletter and other kind of communication strategies I've tried to put out opportunities and requests for volunteerism. We did some of that at the beginning, um, you know, where we had, we needed X number of volunteers to help us go out and survey all the sidewalks or survey all the streetlights or do this or do that and just put some time together. And, you know, if I had more time, I'd organize cleanups every weekend and I would do this and I would do that. But there's sort of a finite amount of resources that you have. And so beyond those kind of things, did you have any ideas? Because I really, I agree with you. I think that there's so much untapped capabilities in this uh, district that, you know, I don't want to make any excuses, but, you know, I was only able to activate to a certain extent.
1: Hmm. Yeah, no, I think um, the more I sort of delve into local government, the more you sort of, it really hits home that, you know, there's never enough time, there's never enough money, um, to sort of get it all done and that's I think what requires creative thinking in local government I think you've done a great job of um, sort of figuring out how to stretch limited resources to achieve some of those goals. Um, I've been having conversations, you know, particularly about how this district begins to engage with other districts and other neighborhoods. particularly sort of uh, predominantly black districts, um, predominantly black communities here in Louisville um, around sort of racial justice and racial equity um, and how we sort of follow black leadership in those communities, but lend our voice not as sort of the loudest one advocating for change, but really in sort of a support role of listening and figuring out how to activate folks here To engage in projects happening in other parts of the district and other parts of the city Um, and you know i think in some ways there's so much work to be done that at times it can feel almost paralyzing to know where to start Um, but i've been really heartened that every time i've even sort of started to talk about that with people here in the district you know they say i'm interested i want to help And hey, here are the names of five to 10 of my friends who also want to be involved in that kind of work. Um, And so it makes me really hopeful that, you know, once we sort of get organized and sort of get goal directed, that there's um, a lot of enthusiasm for being involved in the type of work to make um, a more just and equitable city.
0: Hmm. Um, You know, right now, some of the work that we're doing in the city in terms of Uh, breaking down some of these systems has to do with the police department and um, sort of criminal justice generally. Uh, I'm wondering what you think about what you're seeing so far from uh, the administration, the Metro Council, the police department, the police union in terms of some of the uh, reforms that are being, you know, uh, tussled over right now. And then also, you and I have discussed before how it seems to me like there's a huge gap Uh, between local government, legislative and executive branches, and the court system. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: I was wondering if you had any ideas, because I think bridging that divide is something that's going to be vital in terms of there being a a better functioning, more fair city in the future.
1: Yeah, I will say um, that is one of the things that I've most enjoyed. um, Your first question is one of the things I most enjoyed sort of talking to you about and picking your brain over a little bit is, Um, Our city is clearly very divided on how to to move forward from this moment in time that we're in. Um, And we do need to change the way that we think about policing. And from my perspective, change the way that we allocate resources to policing um, and figuring out how to have a conversation that actually results in policy change and doesn't sort of send people to their respective corners where they have no interest in coming to any sort of Um, bargaining tables, I think is a uh, seems like it's going to be a really challenging issue to address. Um, As for the court system, you know, my background, a lot of my legal work has been focused around this idea of access to justice. That's the course that I'm actually teaching at the University of Louisville Law School is on access to justice and this idea of the role of our courts in, um, you know, it's our third branch of government. In some ways, it's a lot of people's most intimate and personal interaction with our government systems is sort of appearing before a judge for um, a a major problem that has popped up in their life. Um, And we tend not to focus on it. And there is a lot that we can do to have better oversight and to better inform people on sort of um, how court systems work and some of the systemic issues and how we make sure that everyone is able to navigate our legal system um, fairly and have access to sort of the resources and tools they need to get a just outcome, because I think increasingly we're all aware that um, courts don't always function perfectly, particularly for folks who don't have um, a lot of resources.
0: Well, I, I think I've said before. I, instead of having a public safety committee that looks at police, fire, EMS, and all that thing, like it's like everything has to do with safety, I don't understand why we don't have a judiciary committee like they do at every other level of government, or a or criminal justice committee. And, um, you know, my two senses, I think you'd be a wonderful choice to lead that kind of a effort over the coming years. I hope that's something. I hope that's one area in which the Metro Council evolves. Uh, in the future, I think it's would be would be critically important.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. Thank you. And I I agree. I think it's um, crucially important. And I think as we talk about everything from policing reforms, you know, the criminal justice process doesn't stop at arrest. It sort of plays out through the court system. And also, the eviction crisis is something that plays out in our courts. That I I think that we're going to be dealing with the ramifications of the coronavirus pandemic on affordable housing in our city, this affordable housing, as we've talked about, was something we were struggling with as a city even before this pandemic hit. Um, And now there's just sort of this crisis waiting to unfold in our courts. And so I do think having a very active understanding of how our court systems are dealing with these things is gonna be really important.
0: Yeah, it it is difficult for new council members that come on board in the dead of winter halfway through the budget year, uh, drinking from a fire hose with all the new stuff that you have to deal with, and all of the real sort of people that are falling through the safety net right in front of your face. You know, people on the street, people that are hungry, people that are cold, excuse me, Um, especially when, you know, our resources are not just going to be constrained by the budget, depending on what the federal government does to assist us, but COVID guidelines, how many people can fit into day shelters, how many people can safely occupy a a warm, safe space. So, you know, um, I don't envy you uh, having to jump right in and having to deal with what could potentially be a really uh, dangerous, sad, cold winter for this community. Uh, But I think it's, it's work that we obviously need to be doing between now and the end of the year as a Metro Council and create some headspace so that Um, you know the new year doesn't start without a plan so to speak and this is a long and steady hill we've had to climb over the past few years in terms of budget constraints and dealing with the uh, growing sort of social problems that we have so you know um, I want to you know ahead of time wish you the best of luck with all that you're going to have to deal with it's going to be a challenge from day one.
1: Thank you yeah I, I do think um The stakes of local government feel higher now than ever, um, just because you see how much sort of need and disparity and just like struggling people there are in the community Um, and sort of figuring out how you actually help people in a sustainable way. um, It's just so hard to affect that kind of change, that sort of meaningful data-driven, long-term change. And uh, you can't help but just look around and see why it's so important right now.
0: Let's talk about how some of that stuff manifests here in the district. Um, You know, Bardstown Road is obviously the main commercial corridor, Baxter Bardstown. It's not the only one, but um, as you already know, where we tend to see people that are suffering or that are having problems is on the street on Bardstown Road. And I know you've done a lot of thinking and a lot of work around trying to figure out how to, you know, I don't want to say manage the corridor, uh, but maybe that's approach the corridor and try to figure out how to make sure it's kept healthy, safe, clean for everybody. Um, you and I went, we did a walking tour with the St. John's uh, Center for Homeless Men to try to understand their street outreach team. We've you know, talked about the physical layout of the corridor and some of the changes that are happening. How how are you imagining um, your approach to taking care of people and also sort of the physical environment here in the Highlands once you take over in January?
1: Yeah, I love that. Um, the distinction you drew just then is the exact distinction that I sort of draw in my mind. It's sort of the. The physical built environment piece of it, and then the sort of like taking care of sort of the people centered policy piece of it. Um, And, you know, congratulations to you on all the wonderful accomplishments you've made recently around the built environment, because I do think things like, you know, traffic calming measures, making sure that our built environment is creating the right kind of environment for. businesses and neighborhoods to be able to thrive is so important and it's something we don't talk about enough we just sort of assume you know traffic lanes road patterns crosswalks those are just things that exist without realizing the way that those tiny things that we encounter every single day making sure that we have trash cans and recycling bins and that they're placed well and that we have good lighting and and the way that that actually really does shape behavior which in turn sort of shapes the atmosphere and the um, vitality and vibrancy of a place. is just something that we don't talk about enough or don't think about enough. Um, and I know you've put a lot of work into thinking about the built environment of Bardstown Road, and that's definitely something that I want to continue to do. It's sort of inherent in the public health background that I come from to think about the way that the structures that we build and the way that we sort of shape our environment influences our health. And by health, I mean everything from walkability, you know, how easy it is to exercise and use different forms of transportation to just our sort of social health as a district, our ability to engage with each other and feel like we're part of a cohesive community. I think that's so important. Um,
0: yeah, well, it's inter- I mean, I'll just interject for, for a minute, you know, um, yeah, I'm, You know, we're different. I think one of the greatest benefits that people in our community is going to realize is that me and you have different backgrounds and different interests and different skills. And um, what makes uh, a community healthy and what allows for progress is when you change things up and do some things different. I'm probably more of an urbanist than you are. You know, it's just something I've been interested in and have studied since I was in college, and our backgrounds are different. And your, I'm hoping, and I've had to learn more about human services and um, how to try to build systems and put resources in place to address some of those human issues better. And thankfully, I think you're much better prepared to try to make progress in some of those areas than I were. And when those two things come together, that's when you start to get some real change. So could you talk a little bit about some of that specifically, some of the people-centered, approaches that you think might um, contribute to a healthier corridor
1: yeah um, and I I definitely do want to shout out um, I think it's been really great that we've had this long transition in part because we have been able like I've been able to sort of learn about your perspective and a, a lot of the work that you've done on like the bardstown road uh, safety study and all of that and we've had a lot of time to talk about it. and so I agree I think different backgrounds and different perspectives and then the chance to sort of build and like mesh those has been really good um for the people-centered stuff I really want to talk about a lot of the you know you mentioned the St. John Center um walking tour that we did and for me that was just it was a really eye-opening experience um you know for listeners who weren't on the walking tour with us we sort of went up and down the corridor with the St. John Center outreach team talking to people experiencing homelessness along the corridor and sort of Figuring out what sort of resources um, would be helpful um, from a citywide perspective in terms of making those systemic changes. And, you know, I hadn't realized that a lot of people that you sort of see on, on the streets along the corridor um, may actually have housing vouchers or may have housing issues, but are struggling with sort of long term, sort of persistent mental illness and need more supportive housing. And so that was something that hadn't really clicked for me, this idea that, oh, okay, it's not just about affordable housing, it's not just about vouchers, it's about supportive housing systems to help people stay in housing. Um, it's about making sure that we have mental health um, services and resources available. It's about you know making sure that we have good substance abuse treatment options for right. folks. Um, and so I think it just drives home that I think you you do the you create the best policy when you understand sort of what the issues are that are really affecting people and driving um, driving any any concerns or anything like that. And it really takes getting out and talking to people. And so I really believe that the best policy comes from having a lot of conversations with pe- people about the challenges they're facing and then what they think the solution is for being able to address those challenges. Yeah,
0: and. When- You know, when we've been out when I've at least been out on the street, not just in the Highlands, but around the community with some other council members and with the police department, for me, it's been trying to understand a different approach to dealing with people that have homeless addiction, mental illness issues other than the police. And, you know, that's kind of where some of these meta government organization and budget issues where the rubber kind of meets the road in terms of where are we putting our resources, You know, how much is the police department budget? Whose job should it be to respond to calls when there's somebody that's, you know, maybe causing some disturbance but is in distress? And that is something that is far from clear in terms of what it's going to look like in the fiscal 22 budget. Um, You know, do you have a sense in terms of how? uh different from the status quo where we sort of have a system where well the police do everything it's a gigantic police budget and every time there's a problem you call the police to where you think we're able to get in the next in the next year you know the next fiscal, the next budget year that starts july 1st and then do you have some sort of expectation about you know the path that we could be on after that realistically
1: i really think it starts with shifting our perspective to understand the value of investing in Front end solutions as opposed to back end problems. You know, things like investing in um, supportive housing and um, substance abuse treatment and mental illness and all of these things that sort of um, uh, can take a burden off of our criminal justice system and actually help people um, in a way that sort of having police respond to all of these issues just doesn't. Um, and I think it's something behavioral economics tells us that that's just a really hard shift for anyone to make. That idea of spending more money upfront to prevent a problem that will cost you more down the road, but you haven't actually seen the cost of it yet. And so I think really sort of shifting our mindset um, and beginning that process in this upcoming budget cycle. And then I think once you have data to sort of show, hey, by shifting our investment and by allocating resources on the front end, look at all the great work we've done, look at sort of the human value, um, the human cost we've saved, the, the dollar cost we've saved. Um, this is really working. I think it's that, that first year and beginning to sort of make the shift that's the hardest. I don't know if that squares with your experience.
0: I think so. And I mean, I guess that, I mean, my expectation is that you'll have support from constituents in the highlands to make these kinds of changes um you know i i think that you know i've been fairly involved in some of these police reform and budget reform discussions that we've had since spring of 2020 um but the level of interest that i've seen here in the highlands and um, this kind of support for those things has not translated citywide and so i'm wondering if you think that um that will change for some reason and if so why going into the next budget cycle or if that doesn't change you know what ideas you might have around trying to like you sort of talked about uh get people here more engaged to help advocate for some of that change
1: yeah I think both of those are going to be really important um I'm a big believer that data helps and numbers help And there are a lot of peer cities we can point to um, and a lot of evidence around here's what happens when we invest in these sort of human driven programs. And here's how um, its impact on sort of crime rates or our criminal justice system and how it actually translates um, that sort of by shifting and reallocating our resources it actually changes the entire system for the better. Um, And so I think data is always helpful. Um, I also think what we're doing is clearly not working. and so I think we're at this point where people recognize something needs to change. And so I believe in those sort of those moments in time where you can sort of say, well, we all agree we need to try something different. So at least there's a window to sort of shift away from the status quo, which can be such a force to kind of pin folks in. I think particularly in in policy, um, in the world of policy, because it's just hard to sort of break out of the way things have been done. Um, But I also think coalition building is so important. And I think, you know, people activating folks to have conversations with their neighbors throughout the city, um, with their friends, with the people they know. um, I do think that in some ways this conversation has become more politicized than it needs to be. Mm -hmm. um, And that if we actually can get back to talking about you know not what we think the other side is talking about but what the actual side is actually talking about and what it means to sort of shift resources and the kinds of things we're talking about I think we could have a, a more sort of calm um, conversation that really sort of comes from a place of wanting to understand each other and wanting to reach consensus yeah
0: I I hear you and I like, like your optimism and you know I think that I've tried to take a fairly moderate, data-based calm approach to these kinds of situations you know you won't see me calling the other side names or demonizing people and hoping that good policy is one out and will just win out in the end and occasionally that has been true and a lot of times it has not been and um you know i wonder more broadly about the politics of the year you're going to be walking into not only you know where we be going through this national transition which you know, my term in office coincided with Donald Trump's presidency, and I think that had a massive impact on everything. You'll be coming out of, you know, you'll be stepping into office during the transition out of that and whatever that looks like. But then also this, you know, Frankfurt, which is the real X factor. There's a General Assembly uh, getting together in January. I've, you know, I don't pay too much attention to the sort of Frankfurt rumors, but I've heard all sorts of rumors about they might want to, you know, the legislature wants to change what the governor can do. They might want to change KRS-67C in terms of how the city of Louisville's government is organized and what its powers are. And, you know, I've, I've just not had a lot of faith or confidence in state government, frankly, I know you have some friends and contacts that are elected officials in Frankfurt. That's probably another area where you'll be a bigger benefit uh, to the community than I have been. What is your sense of, and, and, you know, again, even given your background, where you're from in the state and your sort of uh, wider tentacles out into it, what is your sense about um, where the rest of how Louisville is going to navigate next year with whatever the rest of the state might have in mind and what we can do to, you know, make sure that we retain some independence and some authority uh, over, you know, the community that we want to live in.
1: Yeah, I think, um, candidly, it's going to be a rough couple of years in Frankfurt for uh, Louisville. Um, You know, most of the Louisville delegation skews Democratic, and they are now in a super, super minority. And while I do think having relationships with the state and with the governor's administration, you know, like the transportation cabinet to be able to focus on Bardstown Road, all of that is really important. Um, I really think that now is a time to focus on the good things that we can do here locally in our city. And um, I think we do have the ability in Louisville to enact changes that we couldn't do statewide. And so we can focus on things like climate change policies and Environmental sustainability um, and racial justice, and all of these things that are going to be harder to get traction in at sort of a statewide level. And I think the reason that matters is because I think when we do those things and show how successful they can be at making communities more vibrant, that you know, if we sort of pass policies that promote sustainability and it actually is economically beneficial, and folks, consumers like to spend their money on that. Um, it creates this sort of roadmap that other cities can begin to follow, and that you can have this sort of change throughout the state that starts with leading by example. And so I think that's my focus um, for the next couple of years. Hopefully, you know, things will change in sort of the midterm elections and look more positive from a state perspective. Um, but in the interim, I think sort of focusing on what we can control here and um, sort of leading the way is gonna be really important and can hopefully create some, some systemic good.
0: Well, it's that same sort of imbalance of power in terms of between the Republicans, Democrats and Democrats in Frankfurt, some would point to the same thing here in Louisville and say that you're getting ready to join a city council that has 19 Democrats and seven Republicans and that that imbalance has been a detriment to the city. Do you have a uh, any sort of response to that or any, um, Um, you know, have you met any of the Republican council members so far? Do you have any plan on how you try to work with everybody across the city to, uh, you know, make some progress?
1: I think what we've seen statewide is that um, partisan politics, sort of like who is in power, changes um, rapidly. I mean, Democrats had a huge majority in the state house until not that long ago, and then it totally swung, just flip-flopped right over itself. And so I think Getting too tied into sort of party ideology um, when it comes to who you're willing to work with or build relationships with is, is not necessarily a good thing. Um, and, you know, I think it's nice to be an elected Democrat whenever you're in the majority, and that means you can get legislation through and enact change. And um, I certainly want to be able to create effective policy, but I think it's also important to make sure that you are maintaining good relationships with everyone. Um, because I think that's what voters and what constituents really wanna see is that we're all trying to work together to hear all the different viewpoints about how we make our, our city better um, and not sort of discounting anyone just because they have like a Democrat or a Republican Jersey um, sort of at least being willing to to find those places that you can work with folks. Even if you disagree on, 99.99% of the things it might be that, you know, you agree on the importance of paid family leave. Um, and I think finding those wins can be a really good thing.
0: Right. Well, you snuck that in there. You know, yeah. we've been working together uh, on an ordinance to enact paid parental leave for um, employees of city government, which has been a really fun opportunity to try to, again, not just transition in terms of management of the district aid office, but trying to work on some legislation together. A uh, quick update for probably you and other listeners is as of Monday, we had a good meeting. Uh, I had a good meeting, let's see, last Friday with members of the administration and some other council members. And so um, we'll be improving the ordinance that was filed uh, last week and probably filing an amendment by substitution to make a few little changes to strengthen the bill. That's something that I hope we're going to hear at next week's um Labor and Economic Development Committee meeting. And if the calendar lines up right, we'll, I hope that we will pass it at the last city council meeting of the year. And that would be a really nice way for, um, I would find it a really nice way to sort of end up to wrap up my legislative career. And it would almost be like a early start to yours. And I'll mention that this has, this parental leave has nothing to do with the fact that you're getting ready to uh, have another child. You've said that, you know, you're going to be answering emails and working from the you know, once the new year starts anyway, but, you know, your experience has certainly helped shaped, not just your experience being pregnant now, but your experience, your life experience and work experience has really shaped this policy that we've, that we've been working on, and you should be proud of, you know, coming into office with something sort of under your belt, so to speak.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah, it's, um, I I am not taking any, uh, any paid parental leave. You know, I'm lucky that before I get sworn in, I have some, some time off. And so that's my paid leave. But um, yeah, it's been really great to work with you on this policy. I think it's been a good way to sort of see how things actually get done. And hopefully, you know, I think anytime you start a new job, there's always that period of how, how do you actually do, do the things you're supposed to do? And so I feel um, very grateful and very lucky that I've been able to sort of work with you to really see how this plays out. And I'm hoping that it means that folks in district eight um, will be able to sort of be more efficiently represented um, in that sort of January transition. Um, and so I appreciate you sort of working with me on it and and showing me the ropes of how uh, policy actually gets made in the city.
0: Well, it's been really fun. Um... You know, obviously, we build on all the work that the people have done before us did, and that's how this whole thing goes. We sort of win together, lose together, make progress together, and um, you know, I hope that I'll be interested. I hope that when you're, whenever it is that you're done with your term of office, you'll be able to help lead the next person after you and help them to build on everything that you're able to accomplish over the next uh, four or however many years you decide to do this job. I think the people of District Eight are very lucky to have gotten you. You're clearly a brilliant woman uh, with great values, somebody who I know will work very hard, and um, on behalf of everybody in District 8, all your constituents, we're pulling for you, and we wish you the best of luck.
1: Well, thank you, and on um, behalf of District 8, let me just say thank you for your service to our community, Um, and I know that you aren't going going anywhere, and I look forward to picking your brain um, on advice on things into the future. Um, So thank you for all you've done for our community.
0: We go for a walk around the neighborhood.
1: (laughs) Yes, anytime.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Council Member Elect Cassie Chambers-Armstrong. Thank you, listeners of the Eight More Miles podcast. I've really enjoyed it. Happy holidays and God bless you all. Thanks for listening to 8 More Miles, the Louisville Metro Council District 8 podcast. I'm Councilman Brandon Cone. Please stay in touch with our office. Visit our website at wwwtinyurlcom d 8 and once you're there, please subscribe and stay informed to receive our bi-weekly e-newsletter.